What's black, white, and red currently sitting under your coffee table or in a box of knickknacks, well-worn, and covered in royalty? Playing cards. How many countless nights have you played cards with your friends and family? Have you ever thought about their history? Poker, euchre, rummy, war, blackjack, bridge, go fish, cribbage, and dozens of other games have helped people pass time for centuries. Today, we delve into the history of a ubiquitous item that almost everyone has in their homes, a deck of cards. Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. Well, the earliest versions of playing cards can really be dated back to the 10th century. It's like the 900s. Most of the theories about these is that they come from China, but playing cards as we know them today emerge in 14th century Europe. The most probable theory for these cards is that they came to Europe through Italy from the Mamluk Empire, which is based in Egypt. From Italy, cards quickly spread to France and Germany. We know that cards landed in Central Europe because of numerous city ordinances banning playing cards. Places like Florence, Basel, Nuremberg, Paris all had ordinances against playing cards among many other cities. Around the mid-15th century, the coming of woodblock printing made cards cheaper and easier to produce. Cards could be printed en masse. As techniques for woodblock printing improved, so did Europe's cards in both quality and consistency. Printing techniques continue to improve. The first ever copper engraver is simply known as the master of playing cards, because around 60 of his engravings are playing cards, the first ever to have been printed from intaglio plates. He's considered the earliest master of the art of copper engraving. Many of his cards include animals and beasts, and these images can be found in the Great Bible of Mainz. So the Great Bible of Mainz was actually created between 1452 and 1453. It's the same images because that's how we know he worked on the Great Bible of Mainz. It's because he uses the same artwork across both. That's, that's really pretty cool. cool. Yeah, intense, eh? Because they, they have no idea who he is. They only know about him because of his artwork. To be able to like track someone's whole life, but only through like their productivity and their art. And then have it be such a wide variety of things like the Bible and also playing cards. Yeah. So, you know, interesting kind of mix for your resume. Think about how much he's contributed to people's everyday lives, especially in the, that was in the 1400s, mid mid 15th century, when people are at church all the time. You see Bibles a lot and you have um, obviously playing cards all over the place. It was still at the time when Bibles were starting to be entered into people's daily lives, though, right? Like, they weren't, before this time, before the mass printing of them, people didn't really mm-hmm. have them or wouldn't have even been, have, wouldn't have owned them, wouldn't be all that familiar with the Bible, might not have even been able to read it. It probably would have been in Latin, which a lot of people didn't speak. So it's interesting that it is in this, like, the great Bible of names. And then also in these playing cards. Especially because um, some of the other pieces, and uh, especially sort of biblical and religious pieces you'll find his work in, is uh, written in German. So it's part of that uh, beginning of the Reformation, where people are trying to read religious material. So cool. Yeah. Plus his art changes how uh, playing cards are made. Before that, they weren't as an artistic pursuit. 
So he was really, you know, a real go-getter. Oh, yeah. Busy guy. Yeah. Busy body. Changing, changing the entire landscape of art, biblical imagery, and playing cards as we know it. Th- through throwaway items, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Notably, many women were involved in card making, and these businesses were often family operated, already doing some form of printing work. By the 16th century, social perceptions on cards had changed as well. Martin Luther once proclaimed, Games with cards and dice are common, for our age has invented many games. Surely there has been a reaction. In my youth, all games were prohibited. Makers of cards and musicians at dances weren't admitted to the sacraments, and people were required to make confession of their gaming, dancing, and jousting. Today these things are the vogue. And they are defended as exercises of the mind. The, the Salvation Army actually banned playing cards at least until the 1930s in all of their shelters, their homeless shelters. People couldn't play cards, couldn't you know, do any sort of gaming. Really? Yeah. Cards were stylistically different in Germany, France, and Italy. Um, the number of cards in a deck was not set, and suits came in a wide variety. Different elements from nature were often used for the suits, like pomegranates or acorns. But there's also a surviving deck that has monks, nuns, lower clerics, and cardinals. There's some debate over what the purpose of that deck would be, but it's just uh, to show the variety. And interestingly, many of these cards from the early modern period were vehicles for folk art and expression. So you may want to check out our website after or even while you're listening to this because we're going to have a lot of different images that we're going to talk about and we'll have a lot of resources on there for you. Just a reminder, it's nohistory.ca slash podcast. So, for example, we're going to have some German examples that will show a variety of different scenes, like often showcasing role reversal, um, such as an image of a wife beating her husband or rabbits cooking a captured hunter, and as well some different uh, examples of body imagery. You can also see all the different kinds of suits they had, like books and deer, beasts, man. And by suits, you mean like what we would think of as being the clubs, diamonds, uh, spades, and... Cauliflower. (laughs) (laughs) And hearts, exactly. (laughs) Hearts, the most obvious one, the one that I missed. (laughs) I think if the cards now had more images like that on them, I would be a bit more interested. I gotta say, guys, I'm not a big cards person. I can play cribbage, and that's where it ends. That's where my knowledge ends. Cribbage is better than most, I think. Well, not even better than most. Lots of people know card games. I don't know. It's hard to to evaluate. (laughs) Everybody has a different experience from growing up with different card games that were treasured within your family, right? So mm-hmm. I have never played cribbage, but I've played a lot of other ones. So it's kind of interesting how that also speaks to just our heritage and the shared experiences that we have in our own family histories. So if you want to think about the art style in cards that we have today, that can really first be seen in the 15th and 16th centuries, especially in France. And it's still the same kind of art style that's uh, on the court cards today. So the deck that we use today, traditionally, is known as the court card? No, the court cards are just like the king, queen, jack. Yeah. Okay. So that, what you, if I say a jack of spades, what you're picturing is a same art style as they're using in basically like the 1450s in France. Oh, wow. And we'll have some of those images online too. It's pretty cool to see that continuity. Absolutely. Yeah. So as time moved forward, cards became more standardized, and ultimately each uh, major card-producing country, uh, Germany, Italy, and France, settled into their suits. So you can still get these kind of decks today. Uh, Germany, they use acorns, leaves, hearts, and bells. Italy, they use swords, cups, coins, and clubs. And obviously France, which is the deck that gets adopted in England, they use spades, hearts, clubs, and diamonds. 
Which one do you guys like better? Germany sounds amazing. I know. I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, they're really hard to read because they're not like like France is so easy. You have a simple shape, simple color. That's, so that's like like and in France they really revolutionized how you're producing mm-hmm. these things because you only need two colors. The German mm-hmm. ones and the Italian ones all use multiple colors in the suits. So they're maybe a lot more, uh, I guess, aesthetically pleasing, more beautiful, maybe. But from a design point, they're different in a production value. Like an art object yes. versus an, a playing card, more yes. so. A, or a practical a Practical object. object. It's that age-old industrial design uh, tension between form and function. So if you want form, Germany, obviously. And if you want function, France. So in, um, obviously in, in the Anglophone world, we're using the French cards. And that is largely because the first cards that were imported into Britain came from France. Charles I took an interest in fostering his own card-making industry, though, which would then spill over to the different paper producers, pulp producers, kind of really just trying to build a cottage industry. And to, in order to foster that, he granted a charter to the Company of Makers of Playing Cards in 1628. Uh, this system saw the card-makers sell their decks to the king, who then distributed them to retailers. And the cost for this agreement was that the card makers would have to pay a tax on every gross of cards of three shillings. So a gross of cards is 144 decks. So they're sort of guaranteeing an income to prevent the importation from other areas. Mm-hmm. And this leads to a really interesting thing, though. Uh, if you look at a deck of cards today, the Ace of Spades is often stylized. And that actually comes from the tax system that Charles I put in place. In order to prove that they paid tax, the card makers stylized the ace with their maker's mark. That so is it was sort of like an early branding. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's still sort of ongoing. Just building that continuity still. And just to add, a, I guess, a wrap-up point, that system was extremely successful, and by the 1680s, English card makers were producing over a million packs of cards every single year. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to pay the bills. Yeah. And... <laughs> To bring it even to where we are now, obviously the French and British suits and styles of cards get exported with their empires across the globe. So that's why that system really is everywhere in the world. So something that you might not have noticed before is that when you hold a card in your hand, you actually have around 500 years of European tradition in your fingertips. It's pretty It's pretty interesting, right? Because it's like drawing that whole cultural connection back to the people who founded this colony, but also other colonies all over the world. And yet it's become so ubiquitous that we wouldn't even consider that there's a history embedded within this item that we all own and we've all used, and that is just kind of seen as a background thing. Like No one really even thinks about it. We, just, we all know that we have a deck of playing cards. You bring them camping, you bring them to the cottage. Um, it's just kind of lying around, and you don't really consider all that is wrapped up inside of the history of it, of its, its sheer existence. So it might go without saying, but for as long as Europeans have been in the Americas, they have been playing cards. In Garcilaso de la Vega's Historica de la Florida, published in Madrid in 1723, he describes Spanish soldiers during the 1534 expedition playing with leather cards, and the oldest card from America, which is currently stored in Seville, dates back to 1523. So that's interesting too. So were cards typically made with leather, or is that like um, for traveling? It might have been for travel. It might have just been um, the system they were using in Spain. But the system that really catches hold is um, using paper. 
Yeah, I would think that the leather system would take a lot of time and also be more expensive for production. I think leather cards, yeah, for one, definitely more expensive, but also easier to mark, probably, because mm -hmm. they wear. So something that you see sort of throughout the history of cards is people are worried about cheating. So it's kind of interesting to think about how many cards people might be buying or selling because uh, people want new decks if they're playing regularly. Right. And like marking cards is so easy. Which still continues to today where casinos don't ever use the same deck of cards twice. After they've used it, they have to like, they do something to mark it. They either slice off a corner or something else, punch a hole, but they never use the same deck of cards more than once because of that same idea that no one wants to be accused of cheating. And then I buy those cards in an airport. So again, legislation against cards shows us evidence of their use. In 1624, a law of the Virginia Assembly stated, Ministers shall not give themselves to excess in drinking, or yet spend their time idly by day or by night, playing at dice, cards, or any unlawful game. Similarly, in 1633, the Plymouth Colony record for Puritan New England fined several people two pounds for a card playing, which two pounds back then was pretty substantial. But it's interesting because we still continue to see this intersection of biblical aspects or um, religious symbols and religious views and ideology really overlapping or encroaching on the idea of playing cards when it's, you know, we've already talked about how at the very beginning of it was that the same artist was working on both. And yet they have this tension all the way throughout, even until today. It's so just fascinating to think that these two items and these two concepts, which really were made at the same time and became popularized at the same time, were manufactured together, they become so fraught against each other, right? Like they really symbolize two very different views and very different um, attitudes or ways of being. It's that monitoring of behavior and the idea that playing with cards is somehow not a good thing and it's not the way that one should be behaving and it's not up to the Christian ideology at the time. It's so interesting to see that they keep on intersecting. Or the concerns that they have with people's leisure time, because that's basically what it is, right? It's how you spend your time. And in that quote where it says, to spend their time idly by day or by night. So it makes you think about what the priorities of the the church um, or and the government, which I guess you could say are like inextricably connected at the time, what they're what's important to the culture at that point in time and what they'd like to accomplish. Yeah, but, but also the type of culture that playing cards was creating versus the type of culture that manufacturing Bibles was creating, mm. right? So Bibles, when you print Bibles, you're hopefully making more moral citizens, people who are going to be um, more genuine in their faith. And uh, when you are manufacturing cards, they're maybe at least to gambling and maybe at least to more drinking and a whole different culture. And the two really are at odds with one another. So it's interesting to see that they started out at the same time and being drawn by the same person. And yet they really are constantly at war with one another in the culture. Playing cards really do show how, um, especially in places like Puritan New England or newly Protestant, and especially I think with the Calvinist religions, um, how they're trying to socially police their communities and what they want their communities to look like. Because this is all new to me. One thing that I find very interesting is that in Canada, where Puritan doctrines held less sway, cards were quite popular. In fact, at times in the 17th and 18th centuries, New France resorted to using playing cards as currency. So the idea of cards, which are printed in a similar way to currency, like paper currency anyway, 
being used that way. I don't know. I find that very interesting. Yeah, it's actually, it was a precursor to using paper currency. In the 17th century in New France, they relied on shipments of gold coinage so that the colony could have a functioning currency. And the system was started to break down in the second half of the century as the king was increasingly reluctant to be sending money over to the colony and shipments were being lost at sea or just weren't going or, you know, weren't making it all the way to the port. Uh, importantly, this is the period of mercantilism and the belief that there was only so much bullion, so much gold and silver in the world that you couldn't create more. You couldn't have the concept that we have today of paper money and it being a, a shared understanding that we attribute to something rather than the actual value inherent in the piece of gold in your hand. So if a state had more gold and silver, it meant that they were more powerful. So the king's reluctance at continually throwing the source of his nation's strength into the Atlantic makes sense at the time and is why they widely had to res resort to using paper playing cards, which, you know, now we use money. Maybe we should just use our money for playing cards. It's basically the same thing, right? They've got people's faces on them. There's numbers. Same deck. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I want to play with someone who's using $1,000 bills, though. That's who I want to play with. Anyways, uh, so the administration in New France was getting increasingly frustrated with their lack of money. In 1685, the treasury was empty, and the intendant at the time, Dumoulin, could not pay his troops. At his wit's end, Dumoulin cut cards into quarters and wrote the value that that card would circulate at. So the values that the cards ended up circulating at were 15 sous, 40 sous, and 4 livres. Dumoulin then added his initials and seal, and the cards were paid out to those soldiers with the promise that... When the king's shipment arrived, it would be exchanged for proper money. So this experiment came back the following year, but the king banned the practice, thinking that it was just uh, you know a, a gross opportunity for forgery and um, currency manipulation, basically. Um, however, same problems: coins kept getting lost at sea, or not enough was being sent out, and the card, the issuing of card currency by the 1690s became really an annual event in New France. The cards were really a necessity, especially when the export of bullion to the Americas was forbidden. So by the end of the Spanish War of Succession, the government had put out an issue of 1.6 million of this kind of currency. So that's like the, the sort of, as we would think about it now, the dollar amount floating around the colony. So interestingly, if you're ever in Ottawa, or if you happen to live here already, you should check out the Currency Museum. It's different from the Royal Canadian Mint. It's a different museum. It's much smaller, but they have all kinds of different coinage from different societies and cultures and countries. And they have a lot that is ancient currency throughout Canada's history. And they have some of these playing cards. So if this interests you, you should definitely check it out. It's a small little gem of a museum, um, but it's one of my favorites. So you should definitely, definitely go and see it. And uh, you can see images of the playing card currency online on our website. So France eventually tried to phase out card currency and succeeded in 1719, but inflation in the 1720s forced the government to reintroduce the card currency again. In March 1729, the king issued 400,000 currency indigenous to the country and sent out 2,000 sets of blank cards from Paris. So playing cards are phased out and blank cards are introduced. The system continued until the end of the Seven Years' War, when the British state negotiated with the French government to have the card currency system removed. If you want a, a currency negotiation fun fact, philosopher David Hume played a part in those currency negotiations. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it really was a fun fact, wasn't it? <laughs> 
So we've talked about New France, but other parts of what becomes Canada also saw plenty of playing cards. We have stories from Newfoundland, particularly from uh, one Irish poet, Dankaha Rua Kalmara. He traveled to St. John's in uh, the 18th century and spent much of his time, quote, drinking, raking, and playing cards, end quote. Kalmara reportedly sat down for a card game once with a fellow Irish speaker. This is in like a four-person game. They're playing against two English sailors. He started humming and singing an Irish tune, uh, secretly telling his partner what he had in his hand. It was uh, so, so impactful that their English opponents reportedly yelled, Damn my eyes, Jack. We've had no luck since he began that damned Irish song. So cards were real like lingua franca, especially in places like, I guess, whaling stations, if you want to think of St. John's like that, but like where you have people from all over Britain and Ireland who might not have a way to communicate or pass time together. Cards were always something that everyone knew. Something that everyone could have in common and you could pick up and just start playing. And a way to be a huckster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. A way to make like, some quick money off of some some of those people that you might have had, you know, a cultural war against. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't worry. Kamara spends a lot of his time uh, just ripping on the English while he's over there. <laughs> and ripping them off. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we know about games themselves? We've talked about the history of the deck of cards, but what about the games that we play with those cards? The first published manual on gaming was Charles Cotton's Complete Gamester in 1674, which included 20 card and three dice games. In the 18th century, gaming manuals continued to develop as a print genre. Edmund Hoyle was paid an advance of a thousand guineas for his short treatise on whist in 1742. Whist is similar to uh, euchre or any sort of trick-taking game. You can you can still play it, but I, I hadn't heard of it until we did this research. I'm pretty sure that it's referenced in at least one Jane Austen book. So I've definitely heard of it before and read of it. The 19th century saw a real expansion of the number of card games and manuals for these games that were being produced at the time. Furthermore, card production was further streamlined in the 19th century. Face card symmetry was added around mid-century and jokers were added to the deck in 1860 as a stylized jack for the game Euchre. We can thank America for that. Thanks, (laughs) Thanks, America. America. There are essentially two different types of card games, gambling and non-gambling. So guys, you're going to have to lead me through. I know, as I said, I only know, I only know cribbage. So this is all very new to me. So. So if we can talk about like morality in this period. Right. Gambling, not good. Definitely a sin or a vice and something that's destructive to the family order, if -hmm. you will. Yeah, it wouldn't have taken place in in your family home or in any place that was considered respectable. You would have gone down to the local pub or... Or or clubs, like a lot of, um, in this period, a lot of just men's clubs, like rowing clubs and stuff, get busted by the police for gambling. So it's like someone finds out, get in there, break up the thing, and that's that's just because it's not seen as an acceptable pastime. Mm -hmm. But non-gambling games, like you could... There's not inherent gambling in the system like poker or pharaoh. Um, those are more accepted by the church in this period. So those those walls and that morality around cards is breaking down more and more. And while some churches still don't allow card playing, there are others that will actually have euchre tournaments. It's pretty fun. Uh, my family definitely used to play in their local church's euchre tournament. And I grew up with my grandparents and my parents playing euchre every single Sunday night for eight years. <laughs> And if you're looking for euchre tournaments, pubs often have them. And uh, one one community organization that can be found all over Canada 
the Royal Canadian Legion often has Euchre Nights that you can join in on. In Canada, trick-taking non-gambling card games were and still are extremely popular. Like we just mentioned, there's Euchre, which is the one which is usually referred to, and uh, Nick would refer to it as the greatest game of all time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, importantly, it also has a lot of variants that become popular in this period, like especially Bridge. And Br- Bridge is still extremely popular. I mean, like, Euchre is almost a simplified version of Bridge. Yeah, I don't know how to play Bridge, but I do know how to play Euchre. Br- bridge is extremely stressful, and there's, like, a whole language with it. It's, uh, I've only played it once, but it's... Once you get, like, playing, it, it's fun, but it's, it's a tricky one. Euchre was first played in the early 19th century and linguistically traces to the Alsatian game, Yuckerspiel. The first description of the game comes from Henry F. Anner's card manual, Hoyle's Games, in 1845. In Quebec, two similar games are played, called Charlemagne and Le Ruff. There's, uh, I guess notably, there's, there's other games in English called Ruff, R-U-F-F. The, the French one is R-O-U-G-H. But these get that there there's slight variations on them. So all of these, including bridge, really date back to when cards first came over to Europe. These games were socially acceptable in the nineteenth century because no one needed to hazard money on the game. So like we said, it wasn't something that you were gambling with, so it was seen as being a more moral version of this pastime. Some people still found dangers in tournament style games like Progressive Euchre. I found a newspaper article about Progressive Euchre where they said um, it was from the Globe and Mail in the late 19th century, and they were talking about a Progressive Euchre tournament that happened in Missouri and how the fact that you had winners and losers on a grand scale could be dangerous to the moral fabric of society. That's incredible. (laughs) One of the first references to poker in the historical record occurs in 1829 when English actor Joseph Crowell mentions it in his diary. He described the game being played on a steamboat bound for New Orleans. Other accounts corroborate this, suggesting poker emerged in the early 19th century in New Orleans, spreading along the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. I'm so happy it did. Poker's so much fun. Poker then evolved through the 19th century, spreading across America and developing from a 20-card deck version to the French 52-card deck version known today and adding offshoot varieties such as draw poker, stud horse poker, and jackpot poker. They all sound like hot sauces. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they are. Maybe they are. The first recorded set of rules was written by Robert C. Sheshnick, a United States ambassador to Britain, who introduced the game to Queen Victoria's court in 1872. They requested he write down the rules so they could keep playing once he returned to America. So I guess only the poor are immoral when it comes to gambling. Yeah, those social double standards are pretty interesting, aren't they? Yeah. Tells you a lot about what the system wants you to do with your idle time. <laughs> but, but it also tells us about how social perceptions of cards are really changing. Because really Queen Victoria, especially and as we get later in her life, is this symbol of purity and what it means to be like a British woman, British mother. You're supposed to be matronly and all this. And she's playing cards. And not just cards, gambling cards. Times are a-changing. Unsurprisingly, gambling games like poker and pharaoh endured through the 19th and early 20th centuries, but there were consequences for their players. Canadians were often arrested or fined when noisy neighbors or police suspected gambling. Businesses alike faced fines. They were just jealous that they weren't invited to play. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But you have stories from this period of um, women gambling, so like all women's games being broken up. And this is all just reported on in newspapers. So it's interesting because it's, it's, uh, 
like gaming, if you want to think about it, uh, with cards, with dice, anything. Uh, it knows no gender, knows no social class. It's something that people do, like people of all backgrounds. Yeah. So when we look at other newspapers from the period, we can see that it is definitely seen as an activity for criminals and squatters and the other immorals across the U.S. and Canada. Other games like Euchre and Bridge were popular social events attended by veterans and families for good-natured fun. So there's really that dichotomy, and it's so stark. Like, one is basically illegal, you know, just the dregs of society would participate in it, the unwashed masses. And then the other is like, oh, it's family, it's great, everyone wants you to participate in it. It's a sign of being a, the moral fiber of society. It's a fundraiser for charity. It's this, it's that. So cards became increasingly entrenched into the social fabric of the 19th and 20th century worlds, especially as various games were stripped of their immorality. Today, gambling is seen as an acceptable form of leisure, no longer the sin or vice of past centuries. And really from the 1960s onwards, um, problem gambling as a concept is, for one, invented, but then largely individualized and medicalized. And the gambling industry is uh, one of the biggest businesses in the world. So a deck of cards really connects us globally to a shared cultural heritage that dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. As an item, cards are important to the history of printing, the history of cultural imperialism, the history of gaming, leisure. They're everywhere. They're, they're everywhere today in terms of place, and they're really all over history. Now you're in the know. So that's just some history in spades we noticed this week. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Puggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Kirsty Walker, Nick Johnston, but mostly Nick Bridges. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or reach out to us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.